Hello and welcome back to the Annick Castle podcast. I'm Deborah Beecroft and I'm joined once again today by Victoria. Hello. For the second part of our look at some of the amazing women connected with Annick Castle's history. In the last episode of the podcast, we marked International Women's Day by sharing stories from the medieval and Tudor periods, especially that of Anne Somerset, the seventh Countess of Northumberland. Please do go back and listen to that one if you haven't already. On this episode, we're going to tell you about a Stuart era spy, a Georgian poet and two duchesses who made Anna Castle their home in the 19th and 20th centuries. We hope you enjoy the episode. Lucy Percy, the Stuart Courtier. Lucy was born in 1600, five years after the marriage of her parents, the 9th Earl and Countess of Northumberland. Both parents had strong tempers and opposing views on many things. The Earl was a misogynist who dismissed the capabilities of women. They had been separated two or three times before Lucy was even born. By the time she was a teenager, her father was a prisoner in the Tower of London, but her mother was a regular presence at the court of King James VI and I and Queen Anne. The Earl disapproved of the court, but the Countess did not want her daughters to miss out on the advantages that came with being close to the Queen. In 1616, Lucy's older sister Dorothy was privately married, probably with her mother's help, but without her father's knowledge. Lucy began to appear at court around the same time and was soon known for both her beauty and her wit. She had many admirers, including James Hay, a wealthy, handsome and extravagant favourite of the King. Hay organised a mask, an elaborate combination of dancing and theatre, to impress Lucy. But he was also Scottish, and the Earl of Northumberland did not approve of the match. Lucy and Dorothy visited their father two or three days before the mask, and according to letters from early March 1617, At the end of the visit, he dismissed his daughter Dorothy to go home to her husband, and to send Lucy's maid to attend her. For that he meant not to part with her, but that she should keep his company, adding that he was a Percy and could not endure that his daughter should dance any Scottish jigs, and there she remains. Lucy never made it to the mask, and reports from the end of the month said... The Earl of Northumberland still keeps his daughter in the tower to secure her from the address of Lord Hay. But Lucy was determined, and by May she was allowed daily leave to visit the Countess of Somerset, who encouraged the match with Hay. The Earl sent her away, seeing he could prevail no more with her, but still would not accept the idea of Hay marrying Lucy. By July, Hay was living in a little house in Richmond Park to be near Sion, where his fair mistress stops. And letters from August 1617 claim He is wonderfully observant to her and her mother and spends most part of his time at Sion. He be commonly in her house from morning till dinner, from after dinner till supper, then from after supper till late in the night. In November they were married. The king was present at the wedding. The earl remained alone in prison. Dorothy and Lucy both grew up to be accomplished women, although with very different lives. Dorothy preferred her domestic role as a wife and mother. Lucy thrived in the intrigue and drama of the royal court, gaining admirers and critics in almost equal numbers. She studied politics and systems of government and gained a significant amount of influence during the reigns of James and his son, Charles I, who became the king in 1625. Lucy became friendly with the new queen, Henrietta Maria of France. A letter to her husband from 1628 mentions that... The Queen was the first person I saw after my recovery from smallpox. I received a command from both their majesties to come to court, with leave to keep on my mask, which was never off since my sickness. Wearing masks was known to prevent infection at the time, but for those who would suffer from smallpox, a mask also hid marks or scars from the disease. Lucy had been Lady of the Bedchamber to Henrietta Maria since 1626, when she was appointed by the Duke of Buckingham. 
Her involvement in politics and her status as one of the most beautiful women in court led to rumours linking her romantically to Buckingham. And it has been suggested that by gaining the Queen's friendship, Lucy could spy on her for Buckingham. The rumours were never proven, but led to a story, also unproven, that when Buckingham turned his affections to the Queen of France, Lucy was employed by the French Queen's enemy, Cardinal Richelieu, to prove the Queen had committed adultery. Over 200 years later, Richelieu became the villain of the novel Three Musketeers. His associate, Milady de Winter, was said to have been inspired by Lucy. James Hay died in 1636, and when Lucy returned to court after his death, she took a leading role in court life. She was powerful and influential, and focused on increasing that influence and power. She and her sister Dorothy seem not to have been particularly close. Dorothy once wrote to her husband about Lucy visiting. My sister is yet here, and so she intends to be till the later end of Christmas, but I cannot brag much of her kindness to me, for it is very little, and she certainly stays here for other considerations than my company. Her involvement in politics only grew in the months leading up to the civil wars of the 1640s. When Charles I planned to take a military escort into the House of Commons to arrest five members of Parliament, the Queen shared the plan with her friend Lucy, who then sent a secret message to parliamentary leaders. The MPs were able to get away, and in the following years it was said that through the timely notice of that great lady, bloodshed had been prevented. Lucy passed information to both sides of the war, but by the end of the decade she was more royalist than parliamentarian. This meant that in March 1649 she was sent to the Tower of London on suspicion of treason, accused of having secret correspondence with the Queen, who had fled to France nearly five years earlier, her house was searched for papers that could prove her guilt and she was threatened with torture on the rack if she withheld information. Lucy was released at the end of 1650 on the condition that she lived within 20 miles of London and did not travel more than five miles from her home without special permission. These rules remained in place for two years, during which time Lucy continued to speak with the royal family in court. When Charles II was restored to the throne in 1660, Lucy spent one season in his court before her death on the 5th of November 1660. She was said to have retained her wit and beauty until the very end of her life. Francis Thin, the poetic patron. Francis married Algernon, the heir to Annick Castle, in 1715. Her daughter Elizabeth, born the following year, would go on to become the first Duchess of Northumberland. You can hear more about her in episode 5 of the podcast. Frances was an educated intellectual woman and was friends with other learned women of the first half of the 18th century. She was a royal lady of the bedchamber, sharing the job with Henrietta Fermor, the Countess of Pomfret. A significant number of the two ladies' letters to each other have survived, including letters Henrietta sent during the three-year grand tour she took with her family. They included detailed descriptions of the places Henrietta had visited, which were probably meant to help Frances imagine being there too. She was unable to travel herself due to ill health. On one occasion, Frances received a set of vases that had been made for her in Florence and sent to her by Henrietta. The vases were not just artistically beautiful, they were a demonstration of friendship. Frances said of them, I have not a room in my house worthy of them, no furniture good enough to suit with them. Frances was a patron of literature, particularly poetry, which she also wrote herself, though her poems have sadly not survived. Every summer, she would invite a poet to her country estate to hear her poetry and support her studies. Poets and authors of varying levels of fame were often her guests, and her hospitality was repaid with dedication odes to her genius, grace and beauty. She was also a collector of books and manuscripts. Several of the most significant items in the Anna Castle Library today were brought into the collection by Frances, 
including a 16th century recipe book and a unique 15th century edition of the Canterbury Tales. Her two children, Elizabeth and George, were brought up in a loving and fulfilling environment, and Elizabeth seemed to inherit her mother's love of poetry and books. When Elizabeth married Sir Hugh Smithson in 1740, Francis would often visit the couple, but her family life was disrupted by tragedy when George died during his own grand tour. On the 5th of September 1744, George had written excitedly to his mother about his travels and mentioned how much he was looking forward to seeing her that Christmas. Within a week, smallpox had killed him. Francis wrote to a friend, Two posts before I had a letter from him written with all the life and innocent cheerfulness inherent in his nature. The next but one was a letter from his governor to say he had died. My daughter, who is very good to me, has sent me her youngest son, just turned four years old, to amuse me in my solitude. Because he is a great favourite of mine and shows a great deal of his uncle's disposition and some faint likeness of his person. Elizabeth wrote frequently to her mother, sharing news, family updates and riddles she called conundrums. Francis lived to see Elizabeth and Hugh inherit Anna Castle in 1750, but died four years later at the age of 55. She is buried in the family vault at Westminster Abbey. Charlotte Clive, the Victorian Duchess. Before she became a member of the Percy family and the third Duchess of Northumberland in 1817, Charlotte had spent some of her childhood in India, where her father was governor of Madras. His time in charge saw many violent acts by the British against Indians and many artefacts taken away to Britain. We don't know much about how Charlotte viewed her time in India, but her mother's journals mentioned Charlie travelling around the country with her and that she had taken time to learn local languages. As Duchess, Charlotte accompanied her husband in his journeys as a diplomat. In 1825, they went to France for a coronation. You will hear more about that in an upcoming episode of the podcast. A few years later, she spent time in Dublin as Viceroy of Ireland, where she became a strong supporter of the arts. An artist herself, she published a book of her views of Anik and Walkworth Castles. Charlotte commissioned Irish artists, purchased works from others, and established the Irish Ladies' Patriotic Association to promote Irish textiles. Even her husband's political opponents publicly acknowledged Charlotte was doing infinite good in the country. She seems to have been sad to leave Dublin, saying of her departure, A most trying farewell it proved. We leave a country where we have been so happy. Charlotte and the Duke visited Anna Castle every summer, and their guests were some of the most famous public figures in Britain at the time. The author Walter Scott visited in 1827 and wrote, Arrived at Anna to dinner where I was very kindly received. The Duchess is very pretty and lively. Her liveliness is of that kind which shows at once it is connected with thorough principle and is not liable to be influenced by fashionable caprice. She gave me a book of etchings of the antiquities of Anik and Walkworth from her own drawings. Ten years later, lifeboat heroine Grace Darling and her father were received at the castle by Charlotte before being presented with medals by the Duke. Very few of Charlotte's letters have survived at the castle, but one to her former governess, Anne Welch, describes the dairy and school she had set up in Anik. Charlotte explains, My dairy has been built after my own fancy, and I must say it is a very pretty little thing. Butter and cream are all I want from it, as this is not a cheese country. Its inhabitants are from Suffolk, respectable people who seemed to be just what I wanted. They were quite delighted to see the beauty and comfort of their habitation. It was very amusing to hear all of their perplexities at first. The Northumbrians could not understand their dialect, or they the Northumbrians. My school is close to the dairy. I shall have altogether 50 girls in it, whom I entirely clothe. 
They remain in for three years and we go through all the little books published for promoting Christian knowledge. In the 1830s, Charlotte took on an important role of her own. At the suggestion of the Duchess of Kent, she was made official governess to the young Princess Victoria. Charlotte would oversee Victoria's education and accompany her to court functions. Victoria's mother was initially pleased by the appointment, but soon disapproved of Charlotte attending the princess's lessons and reporting her progress to King William IV. The disagreements between the duchesses continued to grow, and Charlotte's rule ended in 1837, when Victoria reached the age of 18 and became queen. Documents in the castle archive show that Victoria continued to write to Charlotte, calling her My dearest duchess and herself Your affectionate friend. Charlotte would live to see the first 30 years of Victoria's reign, dying in 1866. Helen Gordon Lennox, the mistress of the robes. Helen joined the Percy family when she married Alan Ean Percy in 1911. They became the eighth Duke and Duchess in 1918. They both had a strong interest in the family's collections and worked together with experts to collate information and create catalogues which are intended to be a permanent record to our ancestors and a permanent record for their descendants. The catalogues, which include illustrations, are still used as reference sources nearly a century later. Helen was a keen photographer and took numerous photos of the castle and its rooms. She also created volumes of pictures of her family and domestic life. From 1930, when her son became Duke, she was the Dowager Duchess of Northumberland, but was also known from 1937 as the Mistress of the Robes to the Queen, one of the most important female roles in the royal household. She would accompany the royal family on state visits, took part in the coronation of George VI in 1937, and when his daughter became Elizabeth II in 1952, Helen continued to serve in her role for the Queen Mother. Helen and her son offered the use of Annick Castle to the government during the Second World War. While the offer was not taken up, it was arranged for the staff and students of Newcastle Church High School for Girls to be evacuated to the castle from 1940 until 1944. Evacuee Brenda Bird remembers Helen fondly for being a familiar figure around the castle during this time, and someone who spoke to all the girls staying there, but that she never seemed like a duchess to them. Helen was heavily involved with the Auxiliary Territorial Service, or ATS, the women's branch of the British Army during the war. She organised a comfort fund for the women who served in the ATS and led a campaign to get the nation knitting for women serving in the military, not just men. The campaign was a huge success and the Queen herself contributed. After the war, Helen divided her time between Northumberland, Surrey and Northern Scotland and continued in her royal duties until 1964. She died the following year. We hope you've enjoyed the second episode focusing on some of the fascinating women in Anna Castle's history. If you did, please give us a like, a share or a recommendation and let us know what you think by emailing podcast at anacastle.com or tweeting us at anacastle. We'll be back in two weeks with a look at another part of the castle's history. But until then, thank you to Victoria for joining us today. You're welcome. I've been Deborah and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>